the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters, if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. First Peter 3, 1 through 7. I have a question for you. Probably an uncomfortable question. So we can let it be rhetorical. Here it is. What do we learn about the American understanding of beauty when Sports Illustrated decides to feature 81-year-old Martha Stewart on the cover of its swimsuit edition? Now. Set aside the problematic nature of a swimsuit edition. What does it tell us? It tells us that American culture has no conception of beauty beyond physical appearance. Now, physical beauty is a real thing, and it's a good thing. But if the only kind of beauty that you recognize is physical, then that cuts out a whole bunch of us, even most of us, when you compare the average Joe and Jane to the models and movie stars. I'd say in the past 10 years or so, our society has awakened to this fact, that the standard is, is very exclusive and not as inclusive as we would aspire to be. And so our culture makers have tried to do something about it. So now, they call every and any physical appearance beautiful, even if it's unhealthy for the human body. They'll put an 81-year-old woman in a bathing suit just to show the full expanse of their vision of beauty. Now, it might be expansive. It might be a mile wide but it is an inch deep. We can tell how much we've idolized physical beauty if you might feel yourself beginning to bristle at the suggestion 
that someone, maybe even yourself, may not be all that physically beautiful or handsome. We can't let something so all-important be the privilege of an exclusive few who have won the genetic lottery. Unless, unless, it isn't all that important. Physical beauty is good. But Peter tells us here in chapter 3 that there is a more important form of beauty. His words are directed at wives, but they have relevance for everyone here. So, you should listen up and listen in. Now, um, Peter has really been begun talking along these lines that we find here in the beginning of chapter 3, back in chapter 2. Um, sometimes the chapter divisions kind of create an unnatural kind of gap in the flow of thought. Because starting in verse 13 of chapter 2, you'll recall that Peter was teaching the Christians in Asia Minor, how they ought to submit to governmental authorities. And then he went on to talk about how slaves need to submit to their masters. And we had a whole sermon on that last week, digging into that and talking about how in in today's terms that can be made into parallel with, you know, being submissive to our employers. Um, and, And what Peter's really doing here as he moves on to talking about wives is he's taking up Um, a form of discourse that is common in that time. He's offering a household code. And the Greek philosopher Aristotle offered such a code, um, offering instructions for slaves, children, and wives. Now, we don't see Peter here talk about children, and I think there's a reason for that. He talks about government slaves and wives because it's particularly relevant to the Christian because the Christian in first century AD finds themselves living within a pagan government. You have Christian slaves serving pagan masters, and you have Christian wives who are married to pagan husbands. And, and the way in which those women had become married to pagan husbands was often because they may have been pagan before they became Christian, and so they they converted once they were married, or um, perhaps because they were arranged to be married to these men, they had no real choice in the matter. Um, If Peter had his way, I'm sure he would have had it that they would have been married to um, Christian husbands, because we ought to seek uh, Christian spouses. But he's dealing with the reality at hand, which is that there's lots of women that are married to non-Christian husbands. And so we see that kind of one of his big concerns here is that they would live in such a way that by their lives they might bring their husbands to Christ. We see this concern in verses 1 and 2. He says, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that, so that, if any of them do not believe the word, they may, be, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Now, I think you know, what he's telling them here 
it's reminiscent of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.22, where Paul says that I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Um, Peter's recognizing that these Christian wives probably aren't going to be able to debate their, their husbands into the kingdom of God, you know, just kind of nagging them, trying to twist their arms, saying, oh, you should believe and all of that. And he, and he sees that the best way that they're going to bring their husbands around is by the sort of character that they live and set forth before them as they live with purity and reverence. Now, there's more here than just evangelistic interest. As we go along, we see that Peter believes that submission is something that wives ought to do, that they ought to submit to their husbands, just generally speaking. And we see that Paul believes the same in Titus 2 and Colossians 3. And yet we recall that Paul also says that all are equal in Christ. In Galatians 3.28, Paul says, There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so you have that on the one hand, this perfect equality in Christ, and yet it's clear elsewhere that Peter, both Peter and Paul affirm that there are particular callings for men and women within the marriage relationship. And, and so we see Paul walk this, this line very carefully. Um, he speaks about the mutuality of the marriage relationship while also pointing out that there's specific roles to play. And this especially comes to the fore in his letter to the Ephesians. And in Ephesians 5, Paul says that marriage is an image of Christ and his church. So Christ, the relationship between Christ and his church is a more foundational reality than marriage itself. Marriage is actually a picture of Christ and his church. And in talking about marriage, he goes back and forth between that human relationship and then also the relationship between Christ and his church and, and, and telling husbands and wives how they ought to treat one another. In Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 33, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So that not that interesting? It's, it's already you have a tone of mutuality set where both are called to submit to one another. He says, wives, submit to yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of, his, of the church, his body, of which he, he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Pretty strong language there. Pretty strong terms there. That wives should submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And if that's all that Paul said, we would say, well, that doesn't seem very mutual there, Paul. But Paul has more to say. Going on in verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. 
He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So yes, Paul has something to say to wives in saying that, yes, you should submit to your husbands. But to husbands, Paul says, you need to love your wife like Jesus loves the church. And what did Jesus do? He went to a cross for the church. He laid down his life. He stepped apart, away from all the comforts of his heavenly glory and entered into the brokenness of our world. Husbands have to be willing to do that for their wives, to go the distance for them, to lay down their lives for them. Now, I think there is something that we... It's so important that we remember this, that... We're talking about the sphere of marriage. We're talking about the marriage relationship here. We're not talking about the relationship between males and females in general. So we're not saying here that just generally, like, that women, that you have to generally submit to men. That's not what Paul is saying here. Um, And there's nothing here from the biblical text that would say women can't become CEOs, women can't become president, none of that. We're just talking about marriage here. And what Paul and Peter are saying is that husbands assume a particular role of leadership within the marriage relationship. But in that role of leadership, they are not to be tyrants. And and this becomes clear in in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, I think. In 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 through 4, and then we'll jump down to verses 32 through 34, Paul says this, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. He's talking about physical relations here. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. So not a one-way street here. And then when you go further down, we see just how much the husband should be concerned with the welfare of his wife. When Paul says, actually, I think for both men and women, it might be better if you're single so you can be more focused on Jesus. He says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of his world, how he can please his wife. That's what husbands should be concerned about. They should be concerned about pleasing their wives. They should be concerned about pleasing Christ. And, and pleasing Christ, that can form part of you know, pleasing your wives. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. So again, we see this mutuality here where husbands and wives ought to be concerned for one another. And God's not calling everyone to singleness. And so for a large group of us, our service to God includes our service um, to our spouses. Now, I think this isn't very romantic, but I... I think a fitting comparison to kind of the 
the, the dynamics here of authority is the dynamic that we see playing out when it comes to submission to government that, Paul, that Peter talks about earlier in chapter 2. He says that Christians need to submit to the governmental authorities, men and women alike. Governments have been given God-given authority to uphold justice, but governments don't have unlimited authority. Government, we're not compelled to submit and obey governments which give us commands that directly go against God's commands. And if you have a governor who is faithless in his role in upholding justice, it's entirely appropriate to seek justice from other governmental leaders, to hold that, that governor account. And so I think, you know, just think about our, our own relationship with the government as Christians here in America. Um, we are to submit to governmental authority, but especially as we are in a democracy, we expect that the government would be responsive to its citizens. And so we voice our opinions and thoughts. We say that this is a government of the people, by the people, for the people. And so Christians are, are welcome, and they ought to speak up for what is right and good and just. But they must also submit. Can we maintain that balance? I think there's Christians in this country who do. And so let's think then about the marriage relationship. We think marriage is of a man and woman by God for each other and in some for, for God's glory. And so if the husband is acting as the head, kind of in the role of the governmental authority here, then he ought to be respected, but his authority is not absolute. It's not to be tyrannical. Just as you can have bad governors, you can have bad husbands, who in particular circumstances you should not obey. And so just as you might like, call up the feds if you had like, the governor of Rhode Island doing like, illegal things, so you would call the authorities unabusive husbands. Um, we should be very clear here that Paula and Peter and Paul are not offering any co coverage here for domestic violence or any kind of abuse like that. Husbands do have authority, but it's a limited authority. It's the authority to seek the good of their wives, just as governments seek the common good. Now, if a marriage is going well, then a husband and wife should come to the decisions fairly harmoniously. Not that you wouldn't ever have any disagreements, but that in the end, you would agree. Something is, is really, really off with either the husband or the wife, or maybe both the husband and wife, if the husband is always resorting to making an executive decision. Just saying, well, we're just going to do it the way that I think we should do it. That, that should not be the norm. Um, now, I, I won't pretend to perfectly understand what it's like to be a wife in that situation, 
um, where you're in a disagreement with your husband and you may be compelled to submit. But I, I do think I have some familiarity. I think some of the men here in the room ha can have some familiarity with that experience because all of us are citizens of a government and sometimes we have to submit to things we disagree with. Kind of, a, maybe it, it seems like a silly example, but um, I remember getting really frustrated when um, the town of Gloucester decided to put a stop sign on my parents' road, Jackson Schoolhouse Road, and it was just to slow people down. It wasn't because you really had to watch out for traffic. It was just to make you stop. They, they could have put a speed bump in. They didn't. They just put a stop sign. So you just kind of had to just stop. Nothing's happening. Then you go. I have to admit, sometimes I ran the stop sign because it frustrated me so much. But I, what I more often do and what I need to do is submit and stop at the stop sign, even if I disagree with it, even if I think it's silly. And wives are sometimes going to be in that situation where they totally disagree with their husbands. They think, this is silly. I don't know why you think this is what we should do. But they need to submit. And, and I think sometimes you, you've all probably been in job situations, too, where your boss says, this is how we're going to do things. And you think, that's a really terrible way to do this. But you submit. Now, if your, bob, if your, job, if your boss says, okay, we're going to like swindle some, somebody and like steal money and stuff, then yeah, you say, okay, I'm walking off the job. I'm not doing that. It's the same thing with marriage. God's not calling you to do anything immoral or illegal or anything like that. Um, but sometimes you have to submit as wives when you have a disagreement about something. Because disagreement itself isn't abusive, um, even though it's really sometimes very annoying and frustrating. But like with any other difficulty or frustration, this is your opportunity as Christian women to set forth the purity of your character, to set forth your reverence for God. And I trust trying to take things into your own hands. You're kind of showing yourself to be a, a very mature person under those circumstances rather than kind of just tearing, tearing things apart because you've kind of come to an impasse on something. And Peter says that Christian wives who do this, especially in relationship with their non-Christian husbands, are going to offer a very persuasive argument for the truth of Christ. It's basically kind of the argument from beauty. And we shouldn't underestimate how powerful that argument is. The beauty of goodness. It's something when you see it, you can't deny it. It's more compelling very often than just arguments from logic. And that's the sort of argument that you should set forth, the beauty of, of your character. And, and Peter goes further in verses 3 through 6, describing the sort of beauty that Christian wives ought to desire for themselves. He says the beauty that they should pursue is not, um, it's not based on outward adornment, not on hairstyles, gold, clothes. Now, something else to be clear here is that he's not saying you can't 
have nice hair or wear jewelry or that you have to dress super plain. That's not what Peter's saying here. He's saying, don't think that beauty consists in that. Don't put all your focus and energy into just your outward appearance. That's not what's most important. Rather, the beauty that really counts is this. It's the beauty of the inner self. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which Peter says is of great worth in God's sight. I think that's important to to note here. Not important what the men think. (laughs) Doesn't matter, you know, Paul, Peter's saying here that if you set forth this good character that men should pay attention to that, and hopefully they will, but even if they don't, that does not matter. It does not matter if you are beautiful in the eyes of men. It matters if you are beautiful in the eyes of God. And what God desires is a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, when you hear that, you might say, well, that sounds awful, kind of like lamb-like. Yes, it does. It sounds lamb-like, and it ought to, because remember who we are following after. We are following the Lamb of God, of whom it was prophesied in Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. We're following... Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who is perfectly meek, and told his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You see, this quality of meekness, of gentleness, of quietness, it should be especially present in Christian wives, but it's not just for Christian wives. It's for women in general, but not just for women in general. It's also for men as well. Because if it's good enough for Jesus, if that sort of meekness is good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for all of us. What all of us should be seeking is the permanent beauty and strength that is found in Jesus Christ. We should not be seeking the things that fade in this world. So, on the female side of the equation, you know, the clothes, the makeup, you know, trying to preserve your skin, all that. And the men's side of the equation, focusing on, you know, bodybuilding and stuff. Like, all, those things can be good. It's good to take care of your body and it's good to look nice and all that. But that's not important because it does not last. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians and also in Ephesians these truths. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed by day by day. The outward, you know, the body, everything that we just talked about, that's wasting away, but our concern is within our inner renewal, which is occurring as we are joined to Christ and as we press into him. 
And as Paul says in Ephesians 3, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you, not by making you super rich, or, but by, that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. See, money goes away. Skin wrinkles. Muscles grow weak. But our new life, our character in Christ, is eternal. Now, I can say that I've known women that have been beautiful in just this sort of way that Peter's talking about. Quiet and gentle in spirit. Basically, not, not the Hollywood types. Um... I know such women who are living now. Some of you are in this room. And I know women who are beautiful in in just this sort of way who have now gone to their rest in the Lord. Mothers of the faith who are most beautiful in just this way. Not crude. Not argumentative. Not narcissists. Not busybodies. But women who looked just like Jesus. Women, you need to look to these women as your examples because what they've done is put their hope in God. That's what's clear from the way that they've lived their lives. Men need to look to this example as, as well. They've put their hope in God rather than perishing things. We need to follow a legacy that, that goes all the way back, Peter says, to Sarah. And the reason why he picks out Sarah is this, is because if, if Abraham is the father of faith, because God counted him, as, him righteous simply for believing God's promises to him, and so he is the father of all of us who have faith as well in God and Jesus Christ. So if Abraham is our father of faith, then Sarah is also our mother in faith. She's the mother of the faithful. And so, Sarah has set forth an example. She submitted to her husband, Abraham, saying that um, she called him her Lord. That appears in Genesis 18.12. And what Peter is saying is not that women have to literally do that. That's not the point. I think that would get annoying, actually. Um, The point is the spirit behind that, of recognizing that authority, of showing that, respect. And hopefully that's a joy to women because the men, again, are showing their love for their wives by laying down their lives as Christ laid down his life for his, the church. And so Peter says that if, if you are a daughter of Sarah, if you are a daughter of faith, then you will follow in her footsteps. You'll do what is right. You'll submit to your husband and you will live without fear. That's an interesting little addition there, I think. What does that mean, live without fear? I, th- I think the meaning is, is, is this, is that you live by faith and that your security is not based on being able to control every outcome. Your security is based on your hope and faith in God. I think it means that to live without fear means that you can stand firm in the faith even when your husband might overreach and try to divide you from Christ, thinking especially of Christian wives 
married to non-Christian husbands. Don't live with fear. You're secure in Christ. No one can come between you and Christ. No one can take you out of his hand. This is the beauty that wives and and women should seek, and this is the kind of of beauty that a, a man should seek in a wife. And Peter does have a word here for husbands, closing out with verse 7. He says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, we've already said at length here that husbands need to treat their wives right. What Peter says here is, in particular, they need to be considerate of their wives and treat them with respect. Husbands must show their wives respect. Now, commenting on on this passage, the Protestant reformer John Calvin says this, Part of the prudence, which he mentions, is that the husbands honor their wives, for nothing destroys the friendship of life more than contempt, nor can we really love any but those we esteem, for love must be connected with respect. Love must be connected with respect. You see, before Aretha Franklin wrote her song, you know, R-E-S-P-C-E-C-T, find out what it means to me, before she wrote that song, Peter and John Calvin had something to say in this regard as well. Husbands, you cannot claim to love your wives if you do not respect them. If you do not show them respect. Because if you do not show them respect, it's clear that you just have contempt for them. And you're just using them. Now why, why should husbands show their wives consideration and respect? Peter gives a couple reasons here. First, he says, because they are the weaker partner. Now, when you hear that, the weaker partner, you think, oh, well, if something's weak, it's of, of less value. Um, well, that's just not true. <laughs> just because something is weak does not mean it's of less value. Recall what Paul says of the body of Christ, the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 21 through 22, it says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And husbands, you should know, if you don't already know it now, your wives are indispensable. God knew this. When God created man, he looked at Adam, and he says, not good that man's alone. I, I think... It, and some, I had my own little commentary to this. I just imagine God saying, clearly this guy is going to need help. It's like the angels come to God. He lost that stone tool he's, he's working on again. He's going crazy, walking all over the garden trying to find it. <laughs> he's going to need help. You can't do this alone. And it's interesting because, you know, in Genesis 2 it talks about how the woman is, is 
as a helper to man. And sometimes we think that's kind of a diminutive status, but actually elsewhere throughout the Old Testament, that same word for helper is used of God, of how God is our helper. So to be a helper is not a diminutive status. It's, it's, a, great, it's a great and important status. And it's an indication of, of masculine insufficiency on our, on our own. So husbands ought to love and prize and protect their wives as the, as the weaker partner. And the second reason why is, is, is this, is because women are heirs with us, our wives are heirs with us of the gracious gift of life. See, we don't see things from the vantage point of the world. From the vantage point of the world, especially when you go back in history, women were of very low status. And yeah, husbands would use, use their wives as they pleased. Maybe they'd take multiple wives, all of that. But that's not how we are to view our wives. We view them not from the vantage point of the world, but from the vantage point of the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, our wives are co-heirs with us of the kingdom of God. If men are crowned princes in the kingdom of God because they've been made brothers of Christ, then women are crowned princesses within God's kingdom. And so you better show her respect because she is a daughter of the king. And if we fail to be considered, if we fail to treat our wives with respect, Peter says that's going to have very costly consequences because it's going to interfere with our prayer life. Now, some men might be like, ooh, it's going to interfere with your prayer life. And that's just the problem. That's the very problem that you don't think that's a big deal. And it's probably why you mistreat your wife. Because if we're out on our own, if we're trying to live life without God, if we're not seeking Him in prayer, we're being utterly foolish. We're trying to go about this life without the greatest resource which we have, which is the creator of all the universe, the cosmos. And so... If we are mistreating our wives, if we're not showing her respect, we have reason to believe that first, even if we did pray, that God's not going to honor those prayers because we're not living in obedience to Him. We also have reason to believe that we just wouldn't go to Him in prayer because of the conflict in our lives. Because we're because we do not fear God. If we feared God, we would treat our wives correctly. And so if you do not fear God, you will not go to him in prayer. If we live by prayer, though, both men and women, one of the outcomes is that we can become truly beautiful. God won't get rid of your wrinkles. Uh, he will one day. That, that, that will just have to wait until Jesus returns. 
but he will make everyone forget about them because of the beautiful person you have become in Jesus Christ. Christian wives make themselves most beautiful for their husbands, Christian or non-Christian, when they submit to them as much as is morally possible. It's not always easy to submit to governmental authorities or employers or husbands, but it's always an opportunity to become more like Jesus. Husbands must strive to be like Jesus, laying down their lives for their wives, showing them abundant consideration and respect in everything they do, because that's what it means to love your wife. These virtues all come to a head in the marriage relationship, but they're not exclusive to those who are married. Men and women alike will sometimes be in positions of authority. And when you're in that position of authority, you should act like a Christian husband, showing consideration and respect for those below you in authority. Men and women alike will sometimes be in positions that call for you to submit. And when you're in that position, you should submit with a quiet and gentle spirit of a Christian wife. Through this, by living the beautiful life that God desires, God will work. And by his grace, a watching world will be won over by this life we lead. Let us pray. Father, we praise you that in Jesus Christ, you are making all things new. Father, we praise you that even as we wait for that work to be fully revealed at the time of Christ's return, that it even begins today in us, the body of Christ, your church. So that we gain a new relationship with governmental authority. So that, Father, we we respond differently to those who are in authority in our lives. Father, we thank you then, Jesus Christ, you are renewing marriage. You're renewing marriage so that it would not be a relationship fractured by division and conflict, but that to be a relationship that's reflective of your church. Father, I pray that you would help those who are wives in this room to submit to their husbands, to be like Christ, having his gentleness, his quietness, his meekness, Father. And Father, I pray that you would help the husbands in this room to be like Christ and that they would lay down their lives for their wives and that they would show them respect and care for them 
show them consideration because they are co-heirs of the kingdom. Father, all together, make us not concerned with being beautiful in the eyes of this world by our outward adornment. Let's not be concerned with being powerful and strong in the eyes of this world. Rather, Father, help us to seek the inner beauty and strength which is given to us in Jesus Christ and which is ours if we ask for it, if we pray. And so, Father, we pray that you would make us beautiful. Make this a beautiful congregation full of men and women who reflect who Jesus Christ is. We ask this in his name. Amen.